You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Catfishing in Berlin and Tel Aviv, whether you're offering payment for a white paper or up-to-date football scores, it pays to know the right bait. Android apps may be permission hogs, but it's surprising how often the hogs hoard like misers, never really using them. The U.S. Army pushes cyber into the brigades, how Facebook checks facts, and the Therminator knows which keys you've typed from the heat your hot hand leaves behind. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 6, 2018. Catfishing remains in the news. Not only have Israeli soldiers been prospected by fictitious dating profiles, apparently prepared by Hamas, but members of Germany's Bundestag have received the attentions of Chinese intelligence services. In the case of the Bundestag members, the profiles, while bogus, seemed unusually open in their operation making little or no attempt to conceal their Chinese nationality. The Chinese affiliation would have come to light sooner or later, and it was evidently better and more disarming to put it out there from the start. German lawmakers were offered payment for various kinds of inside information, and in some cases for writing papers providing their analysis of certain issues. They were also invited to visit China, where presumably they would be further entangled, Some officials did visit China, where unsurprisingly their mobile devices were compromised, as tends to happen on such junkets. The recruitment technique is fresh, but ultimately classic. Accustom the person being recruited to doing small and more or less innocent favors for you, then escalate to the point where the recruit has gone too far. At that point, you have him or her. Perhaps it starts at a party where you discover a common interest in stamp collecting or bird watching, You trade stamps, you help that nice person get a good spot to watch, say, the storks migrate. A bit later, they ask for a copy of your office phone directory. They've lost touch with some old colleague who works in an adjacent department, and they'd love to get back in contact to renew acquaintances. That phone book's not classified, right? No harm there. It's that sort of thing. And online, it happens over social media. A Chinese ministerial delegation is scheduled to arrive in Berlin for bilateral talks Monday. The spying incident is expected to figure in the agenda. Viel splash, BFA. Give the Bundestag a refresher on social engineering. Returning to the Israeli incidents for a moment, the soldiers were not only approached for dates, but with probably greater success were offered apps that kept them up to date on World Cup results. An Israeli officer involved in the investigation said, according to a report in the Arab Weekly, that at least one of the football apps was pretty good, a nice interface and slick coverage of the games. 
As Golden Cup's self-description had it, the app provided HD live streaming of games, summaries, and live updates. The Israeli Defense Forces attribute the campaign to Hamas, generally regarded as aligned with Iran to the extent that it's a virtual proxy for Tehran. It's worth noting that the data stealing went on beneath an app that performed pretty much as advertised. As Checkpoint said, quoted in the register, quote, This attack involved the malware bypassing Google Play's protections and serves as a good example of how attackers hide within legitimate apps which relate to major popular events and take advantage of them to attract potential victims. End quote. So what are all these apps up to anyway? Here's something that can be either a good news or a bad news story, depending upon how you choose to spin it. Researchers at Northwestern University and the University of California, Santa Barbara, investigated more than 17,000 Android apps from Google Play and three major third-party app stores. They concluded that while apps tend to be permission hogs, the permissions they hog usually go unused. Only 21 of the apps inspected were extracting and reporting data in a questionable fashion. So the good news is that your Android phone probably isn't spying on you and reporting back to Shanghai, Pyongyang, or Moscow, or for that matter to Laurel, Sheltingham, Ottawa, Canberra, or Wellington. The bad news seems to be that if you're careless with your permissions, your phone could do all that if it really wanted to. The U.S. Army continues to integrate cyber operations into unit training at brigade level and below. It's established a cyber range for rotational units to use as they come through the National Training Center at Fort Irwin for brigade and task force training. Cyber operations had long been a national and not an organizational responsibility. There have been plans to change this for some time, and if cyber operations have come to Fort Irwin, our NTC desk assures us That's the clearest possible sign that this change is now a reality within the Army. Facebook, like other platforms, continues to struggle with content screening. An interview in Wired offers some perhaps surprising perspective on how their process works. Most accounts of it have focused on the role played by artificial intelligence, with the dopey, biased, or otherwise tendicious results that periodically surface being attributed to the algorithms. But Facebook's relationship with content is more complicated than that. Most descriptions have imagined the AI screening and then the humans intervening as necessary. That seems not to be correct. In its efforts against the propagation of fake news of the kind spread about by the troll farmers of Russia's Internet Research Agency, the AI just looks for trending stories. With human fact-checkers, and Facebook employs thousands of them, doing what their job title implies checking facts. Then the humans turn the content they've found to be bogus, or if you're in a suspicious mood, objectionable on whatever mysterious grounds the House of Zuckerberg may have established. Fact check that, muggalos. They turn that content over, we repeat, to the AI, which then romps out to look for its appearance. And no, your clown makeup won't help. Finally, another team of researchers, those at the University of California, Irvine, reports on the Therminator proof-of-concept hack, someone with a decent mid-range thermal camera who gets close enough to an unattended keyboard or keypad within 30 seconds of use can see what keys were pressed. Hunt and peck typists, as opposed to those who paid enough attention in school to use all ten fingers, left particularly clear thermal signatures. It's tough to imagine how this might be useful in the wild, 
You'd think someone hanging around the office with a decent mid-range thermal camera would be conspicuous and easily recognized, even if they were wearing juggalo or juggalette makeup. On the other hand, setting up an inconspicuous camera around a terminal where people enter pins, an ATM in a high-traffic area maybe, might work, although how you'd get the rest of the pay card data isn't entirely clear. Perhaps the proof of concept is useful in drawing attention to the possibilities brought by the increasing commodification of sensors that were once relatively expensive and exotic. Or another reminder, as if more were necessary, of the shortcomings of passwords and pins generally. But here's one lesson that shouldn't be overlooked. Your typing class could have made you a more secure user of computers. So stay in school, kids. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis at Terbium Labs. Emily, welcome back. Um, you all have a white paper that uh, is uh, recently released, um, and you're looking at things like fraud and how it relates to supply chain and things like that. Can you give us an overview? What are you getting at here? Sure, yeah. So very excited to have this research coming out. I'm looking forward to having conversations about it. I think it's a conversation starter. We're looking at a couple of things here. Um, we're thinking about fraud as a supply chain. And so we're looking at, at really two pieces. One, sort of the goods and services aspect. Uh, and then also, what does this mean if this is a supply chain? Does this modify the way that we're thinking about fraud? 
So on the one hand, the sort of goods and services side, um, we talk about a lot and cer- certainly other people are discussing, you know, the dark web trade and information isn't uh, kind of a scramble or a one-off. It's a really well-structured economy. There are vendors and there are buyers. It's subject to supply and demand. Goods command certain prices. And so we're able to evaluate it as an economy. And one of the things that we're looking at is how is data valued? We all have a concept in the real world. We think about our uh, our risk calculations or our data classifications of what information is most important. And we think of information as being valued in the same way that we uh, measure import. But it's different on the dark web. Hmm. The information that is most prevalent or most valuable may not directly tie back to your concepts of data sensitivity or data classification. And if we're going to be thinking about the economy and thinking about how it impacts us, we need to understand how data is actually valued. So the things that might be valuable to me or I may perceive as being valuable, that might not align to what the folks on the dark web consider to be valuable. Right, because when these people on the dark web are thinking about data, they're thinking about the potential for monetization. So something that you might have that's very sensitive may not be easy to monetize or may have such a small audience like intellectual property where it's going to be kind of one-offs, right? It's going to be very targeted um, people coming after specific things as opposed to the information that's being traded constantly. Hmm. The other piece of this that we're thinking about um, is if this is a supply chain, how do we think about disrupting it? And the analogy I'm I'm trying out here and I'll try out with with you guys who are listening (laughs) is uh, we think about agriculture we have an understanding of what a product recall would look like, right? If something goes wrong, somebody gets sick, oh no, I've started eating salads and now Romaine's going to kill me. You know, we walk this process back and we identify a point and we, you know, we issue a big recall. Mm-hmm. In fraud, we're having kind of the same approach, right? Payment card fraud, something goes wrong. We say, okay, we'll figure it out. We scramble. It's a very reactionary approach because right now that's our only way of understanding when fraud has occurred, is as it's occurring, after it's occurred. Hmm. But if this is a supply chain, how can we think about getting ahead of it? How can we think about stepping back? What if we could get to it before something happened? What if we could get to it as this information is becoming available? And so that's a that's a hard question. It's something we're working on. So I'm excited to discuss with people. All right. Well, check out the white paper over at Terbium Labs. As always, Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Brian Wells. He's the Chief Technology Officer at Merlin International. Brian previously served as the Associate Vice President of Health Technology and Academic Computing for the University of Pennsylvania Health System, Perelman School of Medicine. He also held a leadership position at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Our conversation focused on the lessons that can be learned from high-performance healthcare organizations, specifically how they approach cybersecurity. They are under attack. They are a very target-rich environment. Uh, They have a lot of legacy technology that's been around for years that isn't secure enough, perhaps. And they also are attractive in that they're running an organization that provides life and death services to patients. And uh, they can't afford to have any systems go down, be they electronic medical record systems or medical devices that has to work all the time, really can't go down and have force everyone to work with a paper system that they're not used to using any longer. And so there's a lot of uh, power that a hacker might have to extort or to you know use ransomware to force a health system to pay them money to get their systems back up and running again. 
Yeah, and, and particularly when it comes to ransomware, I, I think you know the the common uh, the common advice is to not pay the ransom. But I can certainly see in a healthcare situation when lives are on the line that um, it may be something that organizations consider. I, they definitely consider it. I think it depends on the on the uh, maturity of the organization. So if you're a large organization with a robust IT team that's following best practices around security and, and disaster recovery, you may be able to recover quickly enough and not pay the ransom. But if you're a smaller health system or hospital that doesn't have the depth of team and, and technologies, you may have to just pay. Now, you have quite a bit of experience in the healthcare sector. Uh, what sort of advice do you have for organizations to help protect themselves? Uh, there's a lot of basics they have to you know, start with. Number one would be educating their staff and their employees about uh, how to be uh, careful with the uh, emails and other types of things that they maybe come in contact with on their computers to not click on links they don't recognize or to open up files that were given to them and someone they don't trust. And so part of, a big part of it is just educating the staff as to how to be very careful and secure in their daily dealings with data and working with information. And then secondly, they have to secure their network. So if a robust firewall system that protects their network from external attack they need to have constant monitoring tools that are checking the endpoints on their network that are connected to make sure that they're patched and current and running the proper antivirus technologies and that sort of thing. And then they just have to um, really just hire a, a chief information security officer and build a security team that is constantly monitoring the organization, checking log files and looking at data to make sure that they have not been attacked and to prevent future attacks. It's a difficult a never-ending job. It's kind of like uh, weeding your lawn. You're never done killing the weeds on your sidewalk. They always come back and you just can never give up. And they, You have to have the collection of people and technologies to really be vigilant about protecting everything. And what about incident response and and, um, and sort of practicing for the inevitability of these sorts of events? I, I can imagine in a healthcare situation, uh, it's hard to carve out the time for those sorts of exercises. It's very hard to carve it out. You definitely have to have one. If you can't carve out time to stage a, a fake you know, situation, you definitely should do tabletop exercises that brings the appropriate business, clinical, and technology folks to the table and walk through what would we do if we had a ransomware attack and we couldn't access our electronic medical record for 24 hours? What would we do or even longer potentially? So you do have to have a plan. You have to accept the fact that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, and really prepare and practice to the best of your ability. You can't really you know, stage a, a real attack because it's going to upset uh, patient care, and that's the primary job. And so you really just have to model it, maybe set up a test environment where you can simulate it in a, in a non-production mode to see what, how everyone responds. But you really just have to, at a minimum, run these tabletop exercises. Now, what about uh, the notion of reducing friction? I'm thinking particularly uh, for the doctors and nurses, the people who are actually, uh, you know, doing the doing the healthcare, uh, applying the medicine. Um, I, I've heard that uh, you know if something gets in the way of them being able to provide care to their patients, well, that's not going to be their priority. Some sort of security procedure that slows them down in uh, the operating room or or uh, you know in the patient care. They're not going to stand for that. Um, how do you strike that balance between uh, meeting their needs as healthcare providers, but also protecting the organization? Um, you have to involve them in the process. Uh, the more mature organizations have a security governance committee that has uh, security people, as well as IT people, as well as clinicians, nurses, doctors, and business folks. And they sit around the table and they weigh the pros and cons of 
forcing an automatic screensaver timeout of five or 10 minutes versus 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Those kinds of organizational discussions have to happen with all the, all the uh, stakeholders in the room, and they have to be educated as to the trade-offs of what would happen if we weren't secure. Would you, you know, can you tolerate switching back to using a paper system for 48 hours if, we're, if we allow people to not be secure? And so there is that constant conversation you can't, IT can't just inflict these things on the organization. They have to understand the pros and cons. I, I think one thing that uh, is important is the, the role that third parties play. So many organizations use third-party software vendors for their applications as well as they bring in consultants and other organizations. And I think it's extremely important to make sure that all of your third-party partners, be they vendors of technology or vendors of people, nurses or IT people or other consultants, um, have a shared accountability so that they're also involved in ensuring that their software, their technology, their people are um, following the rules and uh, behaving securely as well. That's Brian Wells. He's Chief Technology Officer at Merlin International. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.